So your life story is one of progress and fulfillment to becoming the glorious person you are today. Amen. That's the last good thing I have to say. No, there's more. More specifically, the purpose of an infant is to grow into adulthood. You who have infants, that's, that's going to happen. The purpose of being a toddler, a child, a tween, or a teen is to grow into mature adulthood. You are the fulfillment of your parents' genes and your stages of nurture and life experiences. Your earlier stages of development as a child are not, were not bad, they weren't wrong, but they were meant to be grown through and matured into adulthood. You were meant to become an adult, the fulfillment of your past. By the way, are there any bronies here today? This is true. There are adult men who play with My Little Ponies. So I think that's kind of strange, but stuck in, in patterns of childhood are, is not good. So it is with the Bible's story. The story of the Bible is one of progress and maturity and growth. So all that we've been looking at, and uh, for you who are newer today, we're, we typically take a passage of Scripture and we, we expound upon that passage of Scripture. What we've been doing for the past four weeks, and we'll finish up next week, is to go through the whole story of the Bible in five weeks. So here we go. We're in part four. Um, and if you haven't gotten a copy of the study guide, so there's a study guide, something like this, uh, raise your hand, and I don't see any ushers immediately available, but maybe they'll hear my cry, hey, any other study guides, bring them in, and uh, we'll, we'll get those for you. So last week, uh, the first week, we, talk, we talked about creation and fall, and then we looked at Abraham and Israel, and last week we looked at the subject of the exile of Israel and prophecy. And what we said about the prophets is the prophets did talk a lot about judgment and need for repentance. And God did send his people into exile for their hundreds of years of rejecting his word. But they also spoke much about the fact that God was going to redeem his people, restore them to his place, a land of promise that is like a new Eden. Under the rule of his savior king with the nations having come to the Lord with great blessing. So that's what we're saying. The story of the Bible is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And what happened after a remnant of Israel returned to the land, the promised land, is God's people were still sinful. God's place was not glorious. God's king had not yet come. And where is God's blessing to the nations and to Israel? So you you come to the end of the English version of the Old Testament and you have the prophet Malachi saying that there's one coming who's going to announce the coming of the Lord. And, and so there's this longing for the, the coming of the Lord. And 400 years later in Mark's gospel, we'll look at Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 that may be on the screen. Mark begins his gospel 400 years later with quoting from um, Malachi and also the prophet Isaiah. 
and saying, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So these prophets foretold that a, a herald, a messenger, would appear in, in advance of God's king to announce his imminent arrival and to urge people to get ready for him. Um, Mark, in his gospel, identifies that the messenger is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And uh, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins in the desert, in the wilderness. And the message is clear. The waiting is over, the exile is about to end, and the time of fulfillment is soon to come. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that may be on the screen too, is uh, Jesus starts his ministry as, as an adult. Uh, Jesus comes into Galilee, which is northern Israel, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, what time is fulfilled? It's the time for the breaking in of the kingdom of God. The breaking in of the kingdom of God. God's redemptive reign and rule is beginning to be fulfilled because God's king is here. The king has showed up, so the kingdom of God is, is beginning to be manifest. So repent is his message. Turn away from any obstacle to your joyful submission to God's king. And to get to the so what up front, the so what of this message up, up front is, so what obstacles are in my way and in your way of joyfully submitting to, to Jesus the king, to joyfully embracing all that he is for you and, and all that he wants to do through you? Is there anything in your life that's more important than Jesus? And we're in church, and so we're all going to answer no, not supposed to be, but, but explore your heart and, and know what is, where Jesus is in your life. Every part of the story of the Bible, creation and fall, Abraham and Israel, exile and prophecy, and next week we'll look at church and a new creation, is fulfilled or has its, its ultimate meaning in Jesus So let's look at some of the ways that Jesus himself fulfills the summary theme of the Bible, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So the first thing we're going to look at is, in, in a weird way, to put it this way, it kind of, sounds kind of odd, but Jesus is fulfilling God's place. So first point, if you're keeping up with filling in your blanks, it's point one. God, Jesus is God with us. He's the true temple, the true tabernacle of God. The tabernacle had been the focal point of Israel's relationship with God in their 40 years in the wilderness and their early history in the promised land. Later, the focal point became the temple. Jesus fulfilled what the tabernacle was for. So in John chapter 1, at the very beginning, we have in the beginning, he goes way back to the beginning and says, the word was with God, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you say, who is this word that both was with God, always in the beginning, and was God? And so in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, he tells us what, what the Word did. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you may be aware that that word dwelt, the word dwelt among us, is literally the word tabernacle. The Word became flesh and set up his tabernacle among God's people. We saw his glory. The tabernacle was God's good plan in its day, 
But it was a shadow, it was a picture of God's plan to dwell among his people in his son, Jesus, to reveal his glory in fullness of grace and truth. Then in God's, or in John's account of one time, and I think there was more than one time, Jesus drove money changers, profiteers, out of the temple. The religious leader said, what sign do you show us to validate your authority to do this? And Jesus responds in John 2.19, I think that's on the screen, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now they thought he was talking about the temple building. And they said, it took 46 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? And John's comment was, Jesus was really talking about the temple of his body. And he, he says that we disciples finally got the message after his resurrection that that's what he was talking about. Now, Jesus was not only talking about the fact that he would be resurrected in three days in his body. He was talking about that. But this wasn't just a clever wordplay. Jesus knew he was the true temple of God. He knew that his body was the true dwelling place, the meeting place of God with man. He knew that as the temple where, was, where sacrifices were offered for forgiveness and cleansing for sin, that his body was the place where the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice for sin was going to be offered. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the temple and the tabernacle. In other ways, he was fulfillment of being God's people. Jesus is God's people. That's kind of a weird way to say it. But uh, point two, Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. Uh, genealogies are typically not the part that you get really stoked about in your Bible reading. Hey, I did my genealogies this week. But it was very important to the, to the people of Abraham to be able to trace their lineage to Abraham because that's how they validated their inheritance and they're standing in line to receive the promises. So if you think that your inheritance relies upon your genealogy, then you get a little bit interested in your genealogy, right? So uh, the, the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke show him to be an offspring of Abraham, but not just an offspring of Abraham, but the offspring of Abraham. In Galatians 3.16, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul says, the, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, what's he, what's he doing there? Grammar alert, grammar alert. You can, both then and now, you can use a plural word to refer to a singular thing, or a singular thing to refer, refer to a plural so talking about seed, which you could translate this seed, um, when I talk about planting grass seed, I'm typically talking about planting more than one seed. But I use a singular word to talk about plural. Or I could say I've got the ultimate grass seed right here. It's going to be, make, produce the most awesome blade of grass. Watch, I'm going to plant this. It's going to be the most amazing blade of grass you've ever seen. So you can do that. What Paul was focusing on here, it's the descendants of Abraham were many millions and God promised to bless all of his offspring in some sense. But he's zeroing in on the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, which is in Christ, as he says. In fact, in Galatians 3.14, said that God worked this way so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations, to us non-physical descendants of Abraham, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that's a huge blessing the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus, by his perfect life, his atoning death and resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled the blessings of Abraham so that we Gentiles can receive the Spirit. We don't physically become Jews. We are made right with God and spiritually alive so that we become God's people. So in, in one sense, Jesus is God's people in that way. In another way, he is God's people. He's God's ultimate person. Because Jesus, this is point three, is also the true Adam, the new true Adam, and he's the true Israel as well. Paul said in Romans 5 that Adam was a type of him to come. So we need a definition. What does he mean, a type of him who is to come? A type is something that there's a resemblance between something past or present that, re- that is resembled in the future. So Adam was the first in the human race. Christ is the first in the new redeemed humanity. As the new Adam, Jesus was part of the new, Jesus was the start of a new creation. Adam fell into sin and ruined the human race. Christ overcame sin and redeemed the human race. Adam, his life resulted in alienation for the human race. Jesus resulted in reconciliation for the human race. Adam's disobedience brought death into the world. Christ's obedience brought eternal life to all who receive him by faith. So Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In Adam, man was expelled from God's dwelling place with, uh, with God in, in Eden. In Christ, man will be restored to God's new dwelling place with man in the new Eden. But not only is Jesus the new true Adam, he is also the new true Israel. What does that mean to say he's the new true Israel? It means Jesus fulfilled all that Israel was called to be as God's covenant redeemed people. God had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. God spoke through the prophet Hosea about how he had redeemed Israel as his son. So in Hosea 11, verse 1, he said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then he goes on to complain about what a disobedient son Israel had been. Then, when Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world as a human baby, he and his parents fled to... That's right. He and his parents fled to Egypt to escape Herod's systematic murder of all boys under age two. When God told Joseph in a dream to go to Egypt uh, and then to leave Egypt and return to Israel, Matthew 2.15, so Matthew comments on that, and he says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, Out of Egypt I had called my son. So Jesus had his own exodus out of of Egypt as a less than two-year-old boy. In, in a representation of what Israel was meant to be as Jesus being God's true son. That he would and did fulfill what Israel couldn't be and do. And I mentioned last week that another way Jesus fulfilled the Exodus or was a type of the Exodus, anti-type, was his departure he accomplished at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah show up in glory on, on the mountain. They're talking to Jesus about his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that word departure is literally the word exodus. So his death 
and his rescuing his people from sin would be that, uh, another fulfillment type of the Exodus. Israel could not bring salvation to the world, only Jesus could, the Son of God. Another way that Jesus fulfills God's word is Jesus came to fulfill God's law. It's point four. Jesus came to fulfill God's law. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In perfectly fulfilling God's law and the prophets, Jesus became the only man who ever completely obeyed God, the only one to score 100% in God's obedience to his word. We think the fact that God saves us by grace, which he does, means that he recognizes that his standards are too high, and so he just kind of overlooks our sins and and, uh, accepts our sincere efforts to do the best we can. But really, God's requirement for 100% obedience from his, to his word, from the heart, has never changed. So that I completely believe that we are saved by good works. You're supposed to stone me. <laughs> Thankfully, you didn't have a forewarning to bring your stones. In what way are we saved by, by good works, Jim? We are saved by Jesus' good works, not our own. Jesus, his perfectly good works, is what saves us. But by using the word fulfill, he said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He didn't only mean his obedience to the moral aspects of the law and the prophets. He meant that he came to fulfill all of God's word, the symbolic aspects as well, all the sacrifices the priests, the food laws, the tabernacle, the temple, the covenants, everything that the Old Testament pictured and prophesied and taught. This is a massive claim. He said to people who were skeptical, I came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And they didn't take kindly to that, so he ended up getting killed. But Jesus brings God's authoritative word from the least commandment to the greatest, to its fullest fulfillment. Another way that Jesus brings in God's rule is in uh, point five, in Jesus, God's kingdom has come. Earlier, we we cited from Mark 1.15 where Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God has come. Later in Jesus' ministry, his religious opponents, when they couldn't deny Jesus' authority over demons due to the fact that he was freeing and liberating so many people from demonic oppression and possession, um, we're saying, you're casting out demons by the prince of demons. Yeah, we, we got you. And Jesus answered, why would Satan be desolating his own kingdom? That's ridiculous. If he does, his kingdom doesn't stand. Satan is shooting himself in the foot or the hoof. Okay, that's from an old picture of Satan. Satan. Depicting him as having goat legs is kind of ridiculous. In Matthew 12, 28, we see Jesus, part of his response goes this way. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You say, 
excuse me, but if Jesus has already brought the kingdom of God to this world, I would have thought things would be a lot better than they are. Hasn't Jesus watched the news? Doesn't he know about um, the ISIS crisis? Ebola? Israel versus Palestine? Syria? Iraq? Ukraine versus Russia? Human trafficking? Poverty? Racial conflicts, gender confusion, marriage redefinition, family crisis, domestic violence, cancer, and disease. What's the answer? The answer is the kingdom of God has come already, but not yet is it here in full. Not yet is it here in full. And you say, well, did Jesus know that he wasn't bringing the kingdom of God in full yet? Yes. That was a major point of his parables, especially in Matthew 13. His parables in Matthew 13 taught that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, virtually the same thing, will grow through, through the spread of the word of God until it is fulfilled. So um, tell me what this parable means. With Matthew 13, I think, get it up there. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. What does that parable mean? It means the kingdom of God starts out small and gets big, really big. Another parable is one sentence. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What does that parable mean? Start small and spreads out. Give that man a big kiss. Not you, Don. Yeah, we understand now that what Jesus was picturing, the increasing breaking in of the kingdom of God between his first and second comings, from the inauguration to the consummation, till he returns. But what is the primary characteristic of Jesus already but not yet kingdom rule? Point six, Jesus is the king who bears witness to the truth. Jesus is the king who bears witness to the truth. Jesus came as God's king, incognito as it were, to establish God's kingdom ruled by God's truth, whose people are recreated in the truth. Their spiritual genetic makeup is modified so that they are people of the truth, freeing them from TDD, which you all know what that is, truth deficit disorder. It's a a problem that we're all born with. So we see Jesus talking to the governor Pilate in part of the legal process he was going through, the illegal legal process, uh, before he was crucified. In John 18, verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. 
What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world, not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answers, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus' kingdom building in this age is an inside job. By birthing his truth into people, into believers. How do you know you are a citizen of God's kingdom who is of the truth? You believe and obey Jesus' voice. Which means you believe and obey the scriptures as centered in and revealing Christ and his purposes. Another way Jesus brings in God's rule is in point seven. Jesus is the true son of David. We've seen that Jesus is the new true Adam, the true offspring of Abraham, the true Israel. He's also the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. And God's covenant with David, you see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promised to David, I'm going to raise up your offspring or your seed after you. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's foundational to the gospel because in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I'm Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is how God's promise that he would establish the eternal reign of one of David's descendants is fulfilled. God sends his own son, in the human nature of a descendant of David. He is killed but raised from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit so as to be able to give this power over death to a people whom he would save into his kingdom who would joyfully live under his good rule. And finally, Jesus brings God's blessing. Jesus brings God's blessing. That's point eight. God had promised that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. He promised that several times. The prophets had said that through the suffering servant, the descendant of David, God's salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. Through his restoring of the ruins of David's line, the prophet Amos said, and was quoted in the book of Acts, God would take from among the nations a people for his name. So Jesus brought God's blessing to the world. And if you don't know any other verse in the Bible, you know this one, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Basically, the world was perishing did not have eternal life, had only eternal death to look forward to. 
And God's, God's love was blessing them with eternal life through his son, Jesus, for whoever believes. In the context of John's gospel, it's clear that what, he, what he's talking about is Jesus being sent, being given. God gave his son. Was that He laid down his life. He died for the sins of the world. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one whom God's chosen people, God's earlier covenants, laws, tabernacle, temple, sacrifices, prophets, priests, kings, and ways of delivering his people would find their ultimate meaning or fulfillment. So God had been unfolding his story of salvation over the centuries. He had been preparing the world for his final revelation of the saving plan so that Jesus is the Savior for the world. That's what God's story was leading to. Even though God had given good gifts to the, to the world through his older revelation from Genesis through Malachi, even though he had given good gifts to the world that way, until God himself in his son Jesus took on a human nature so he could obey and die in our place and conquer sin and death for us, everything else fell short of accomplishing salvation. So that's why second, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You can't read the Bible without connecting them to Jesus, connecting God's promises and plans and purposes and precepts and principles. The Bible is not just a religious book teaching us religious things, how to be a better person. It does help us in that, but its purpose is to reveal to us Christ. And that's why Jesus said in, uh, after his resurrection, but before he went up, in giving his disciples one of several lessons along these lines, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to his disciples, thus it is written, so he's summing up the Old Testament in a few words, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then we see in, in the sequel to Luke's gospel, the book of Acts, the gospel of the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to all the surrounding nations. And um, in, in Acts, this is not on your screen, but Paul, the apostle, was defending himself, defending his gospel to King Agrippa, who was friendly to the Jewish people. And he said, To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did, what did prophets and Moses say? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The Jews and Gentiles brought into the blessing of Abraham for all the nations. So Jesus is God's perfect people. He's God's perfect person. Jesus is God's place where God and man unite and where the once-for-all sacrifice is made. Jesus is, perfectly fulfills God's rule and saves us to live under his rule, fits us to live under his rule, and he brings God's blessing of salvation to the nations. Isn't he worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor and trust and obedience and living for and valuing above everything and of staking your life on? 
He's an awesome Savior. You say, okay, I see Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promises, but he is in heaven and we're still in this messed up world. So is he really going to fix it all? Is he really going to give the world an extreme makeover? And what's the church here for anyway? Can't Jesus just come back now and take care of this mess? Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of next, next week. <laughs> the story of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we honor Jesus. We love Jesus. We entrust to him our greatest need, which is to be saved from sin and death and to be fit to live in a place called the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Right now, we are in a mess. We have sin battles. We have sickness battles. We have relationship battles. We have financial battles. And But we're your people if we've trusted in Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And you will completely fulfill all that you've purposed in him. So help us to cling to Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And because we don't do that, continue to cleanse us and renew our hearts through doing things like this, coming together, large and small groups, and encouraging one another through your word and spirit. Thank you, Father, that you are faithful. Thank you for the great plan that you've been working out over the ages. And thank you for showing us, Jesus, how he makes sense of all that you've done. Not that we perfectly understand it, but that we do trust in your powerful, loving, merciful plan in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.